The purpose of this episode is to explore common health and well-being strengths and challenges for people with Down syndrome. The content discussed here is not meant as a substitution for direct medical care with relevant professionals. Rather, we hope to share new and little-known information so that families and supporters can be well-informed when accessing medical care. Your child or student's medical or educational professionals may have recommended different practices or procedures that are specific to them. Do not modify or change your child or student's treatment or therapy plan without consulting with your care provider. Lowdown in Destiny Podcast. Dr. Robin Greenlando gives us the lowdown on mental health in Destiny. Over to you, Hannah and Marilla. Thanks, Jody. Hi there, and welcome to the Lowdown Podcast. I am your co host, Marla Folden, an SLP here at the DSRF in Canada. And with me here is my co host, Hina Mahmoud, who is the senior OT at the DSRF. Hi there, Hina. Hi, Marla. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing? Good, good. I'm really uh, looking forward to our topic today. It's been one that you and I have been talking about for a while then that we want to cover. So I'm excited for our guests today. Oh, yeah. The anticipation has been huge. I've been <laughs> counting down for this one for several months, so yeah. I'm very excited. Yeah. Before we continue with our episode, we'd love for our listeners out there to hit that subscribe button and leave a review on whatever platform you're using and check out our episode pages because we put good stuff there related to each topic that we discuss in our episodes. And you can also follow the DSRF at our website, which is www.dsrf.org, or on Instagram and Twitter by following at DSRF Canada. So today, we will be talking about one of these really intricate areas of health for people with Down syndrome, or a dual diagnosis of Down syndrome and autism, and that area is mental health. Just like any other individual, people with Down syndrome can experience mental health challenges Mm -hmm. such as anxiety, depression, ADHD. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm noticing that um, in increasing amounts with a lot of my with a lot of my clients that that dual diagnosis um, on like having the dual diagnosis of autism. But then there's definitely some indications of anxiety and depression as well. Absolutely. And mental health is a really daunting topic to consider for society as a whole, for sure, and potentially even more so for families in this population. There are some extra challenges when Mm -hmm. considering mental health in this group of people because of the difficulty that our individuals might have in expressing themselves verbally. And often one of the clearest indicators is in fact a change in behavior Mm -hmm. from that individual's own normal baseline. Yeah, absolutely. And today, we're really delighted to be joined in our discussion by Dr. Robin Friedlander. Yeah, so Dr. Robin Friedlander is a clinical professor and director of the Neurodevelopmental Disorders Program um, in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of British Columbia um, here in BC. He also established um, and heads the BC Children's Hospital Self-Injurious Behavior Clinic. Dr. Friedlander um, is the past head of Neuropsychiatry Clinic at Children's Hospital, as well as the previous clinical director of the Developmental Disability Mental Health Teams in the Lower Mainland. Um, And, you know, individuals with a dual diagnosis, so mental health and neurodevelopmental disorders, have historically been marginalized both within the developmental sector and in mental health. 
and Dr. Friedlander has spent his career working in this very under-recognized area that impacts students with Down syndrome and a dual diagnosis. Dr. Friedlander has published two books, 17 peer-reviewed articles, three book chapters, and two semi-structured interviews. He has also presented at more than 100 conferences across Canada and internationally. Dr. Friedlander, welcome to the Lowdown Podcast. Thank you. Um, so as we're very a, glad to have you. Yeah, absolutely. I know that we're very excited. Um, and as a tradition uh, in the Lowdown podcast, we welcome our guests by asking them five secret questions. So they're just little icebreakers so that our audience and Marla and I can also get to know you a little bit better. So are you game for that? I'm ready. Awesome. All right. So question number one, um, what is your favorite local restaurant? I mean, I know with COVID, things have changed a little bit, but where? what is your go-to place to go? Well, with the COVID, my favorite restaurant actually is Fett's Whiskey Bar on oh. uh, Commercial Drive because drive. you can sit outside and it's yep. heated. And I'm kind of a bit nervous about going into restaurants still. Yeah, absolutely. And so let's say after COVID, when hopefully things go back to normal, normal, where would be the first place you'd like to go for indoor dining? I used to, it seems like so long ago, Yeah. but I, I, used, I always loved going to uh, Tamaki. It's a Japanese restaurant uh, on Broadway. I used to live around there in Kitsilano. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That sounds really good. Yeah. I think I've been there. Yeah. yeah. It sounds familiar. Yeah. It's really good. Awesome. Mm. Hopefully we'll get there soon, sooner rather than later. Fingers crossed. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, question number two. Dr. Friedlander, what are you currently reading? It could be a book. Um, you could talk about a podcast you're listening to. Sure. I'm, I'm reading it. It's, a, it's an autobiography by, um, um, God, I've got a blank. Uh, what's his first name? Oliver Sacks. He's oh, a neurologist yes. who died. Oh. A, a couple yeah. of years ago, and he wrote some famous books. Mm -hmm. um, like he was the, the author of The Awakening Story, which was made yep. into a great movie about these um, adults with post-encephalitic, um, essentially catatonic Parkinsonian syndromes mm -hmm. that 20 years after they got went into this comatose-type state, they ended up getting this treatment and woke up, which is an astonishing story. Um, this is a story. Movie. Yeah, it's a great movie mm -hmm. with um, Robin Williams, I think. Robin Williams, yeah, yeah. who was such yeah. a wonderful actor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So anyway, this is the story of his life. It's, it's a, he's a remarkable man. And if anyone is interested, if you read his books or seen it, that movie and you want to find out more about him, it's a really good read. He's a very good author. I had no idea. He's not just a, a doctor who writes. He really is a writer. Great. That's, that's, awesome. that's rare. There's a yeah. lot of doctors who write. Yeah, I, I appreciate their work too, frankly. Um, but it's rare to find someone who can really engage you from a mm -hmm. literary perspective mm -hmm. and also yeah. be a neurologist. Yeah, <laughs> nice. I, I think it's called On the Move. Okay. Yeah. Great. I'll look I'm for gonna, that. That's going to be on my list for sure. Uh -huh. Yeah. Um, question number three, assuming no COVID, where would you love to go for a nice vacation? Well... 
my wife and I like to go on hiking trips. And every year we go for a hiking trip in Europe for the last uh, few years, but not this year. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. What kind yeah. of hikes are you liking? Well, I must admit our favorite one is we went to France, went to um, um, the um, Burgundy region of France, mm-hmm. and we walked through the vineyards, trying out uh, the local produce um, every couple of kilometers. That was a pretty sweet hike. Oh, that's <laughs> very yeah, nice. Absolutely. Yeah. I've hiked a little bit in that region and it is not awesome in July and August. Actually, it's really, really hot. Yeah. But in other times of year, it's gorgeous. Yeah. Sure. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, question number four. What is your ideal way to cook an egg? I'm a soft-boiled egg man. And yeah. and you know what FETS does, why I like it, is they got this thing called like, um, they call it a, um, I don't know what they call it, but anyway, it's basically, it's avocado on a, like a scone that's toasted mm. and a soft poached egg on the top oh, and yeah. a fantastic sauce. It's really good. <laughs> Yeah, oh, it's kind of like really an ex Benedict kind of situation, but yeah, yeah, but with, yeah. without the Benedict, without got the, it. it's, it's not creamy. <laughs> oh, okay. got it. Okay, so no Hollandaise. Yeah, <laughs> that sounds really good. Yeah, uh, yeah. great. I know. I kind of want to go there now. Mm-hmm. Um, last question from our icebreaker questions is: Do you have a de-stress routine that's your go-to after a day of work? Well, this is what I do. And I tell all my patients to do it as well. But of course, patients never listen to their doctor. So I don't know if they ever <laughs> do anything, but I, I like, I need to run. It's my, so if I don't run, I play tennis. I do one of them every day. Mm-hmm. And that's how I deal with the kind of accumulated stress of the day. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. uh, can highly recommend it. Although I must admit in the, you know, in the, the I say the, 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 the terrible threes, at this time of the year, it's dark, cold, and wet. Yeah. So in the, in previous days, I'd go and work out in the gym after work, but not in the COVID times. Yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I think that physical activity is just so much more important nowadays, too. Even if it is dark, I've seen, I, I'll go for walks, but I see people running. They'll have their yeah. gear on with their headlamps yeah. and they'll yeah. make it work. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Great. Oh, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Okay, well, let's let's dive into our topic for today, which is this mental health overlap with the people that we care about so much, which is people with Down syndrome and dual diagnoses. Um, the first area that we wanted to chat with you about today is this, this broader overlap of either individuals with a single diagnosis of Down syndrome or a dual diagnosis of Down syndrome and autism, and then mental health on top of that. So when a person has Down syndrome, is your consideration of their mental health any different than the other clients you see? Well, so I should just preface this by saying that I see uh, both, I, I used to see all ages, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and nowadays I only see children mm-hmm. uh, and, and some uh, young adults who. Who, grew, who I saw in childhood and there's no one really to follow them right now. So, uh, I, but so mainly my experience is with children right now, but I can tell you that I don't see 
a lot of kids with Down syndrome compared to how many kids with Down syndrome are out there in the general population. Okay. <clears throat> and I think there, there are studies showing that any child or adult who has a neurodevelopmental disorder like Down is at increased risk of mental health problems. But interestingly enough, if you have Down syndrome, your risk is slight, is overall less than, the, than if you have a developmental disorder due to, say, um, another genetic syndrome. Right. Mm-hmm. That is really interesting. Yeah. So let's speculate a little bit here. We're not doing research live, but do you have any thoughts as to why that population trend exists? Well, I had a, a, a colleague of mine in Boston, Joni Beasley, and she had a sister with Down syndrome. And I remember she said, Down syndrome is the royalty of developmental disabilities. <laughs> and she said, so the reason is, um, firstly, that the, the, as a rule, people with Down syndrome seem to be supremely confident <clears throat> and um, uh and often have wonderful, uh, uh, very uh, likable social skills. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I'm talking in general now. Yes. And and I think the other reason is that and I, 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 you, you have to decide if you want to edit this out of your podcast, but if someone's got Down syndrome, you know they've got Down syndrome. It's not something that the parents did. They weren't drinking in pregnancy child didn't fall on his head people tend to blame and I and I think the Down syndrome parents kind of know they got it honestly I see I see what you're saying mm-hmm. so there's maybe less guilt overall in those less, families less guilt and less blame right okay mm-hmm. I see now if somebody has already a dual diagnosis of Down syndrome and autism, and then they come to you, do you approach mental health differently in that capacity? Because clinically, Hannah and I work with a a large number of students, and I would say about 50% of my caseload has a dual diagnosis of Down Mm -hmm. syndrome and autism. So this is, it's not Mm -hmm. unusual Mm -hmm. that we would have students that already have two, and we're considering more diagnoses. Right. So just to clarify, um, you, you're talking about a population of, of, of youngsters who have Down syndrome and another group who have Down syndrome and autism. Is that what you're referring to? Yeah. So I'm, I'm referring, I'm wondering if you look at it any differently when there's a group of students who just have Down syndrome and it's very clear that there's autism is not in the mix. Right. And then the other sort of group where there's Down syndrome and there's autism, and it's very clear that we have two things going on at least. Right. Okay. So, I mean, the way I would look at it is that um, if you're born with Down syndrome, you uh, almost certainly have a, a intellectual disability, which is usually in the moderate intellectual disability range. Mm-hmm. Um, you are more at risk for two neurodevelopmental syndromes. Um, The one is ADHD, which is very common and may occur in up to 50% of children with Down syndrome. Hmm. And the second, which is less common, is autism, which 
I'm not sure what the latest figures are, but I thought it was around 10% of children with orders. With, yeah, yeah. Percent of children with Downs are, are prone to get orders them as well. So, yeah, I mean, obviously, if you're dealing with Down syndrome and an intellectual disability, and as a speech and language pathologist, Molly, you'll know that these kids often have a, a difficulty um, being understood because they have some kind of dysarthria. And, 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 um, and so it can be very frustrating for someone who's social and actually has the words, but that can't be understood. Yeah. So that I can see lots, yeah, I can see lots of reasons why these children would be at risk of um, being very frustrated. Um, so, so the way I see it is you, 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 the child has ADHD or autism in addition to Down, and that the child will, and, and this difficulty uh, expressing themselves, and that's going to present in the first um, five years of life. Yes. And so these children would be more prone to uh, getting frustrated and having sleep problems. So in the first five years of life, and I should let you know that I didn't tend to treat the, the very young kids myself, but in the first five years of life, that would be where you'd want to be um, helping them is with communication and dealing with frustration and, and sleep. So what you're speaking to here is both the need for early intervention, which is well-documented, and we hope always that little kids with Down syndrome and or dual diagnosis are getting access to early intervention and a lot of it. And the second thing, which is that sleep assessment and sleep relevant sleep treatment, which is already recommended for all students when they reach the age of four, it doesn't necessarily happen that way. We advocate for that a lot. Mm -hmm. um, but this is yet another reason to be doing both of those things. Um, I want to talk a little bit about anxiety and depression and some of the other mood-related disorders. Are there any kinds of mood disorders that are more likely for people with Down syndrome? And on the flip side, are there any things that are less likely? So when it comes to mood disorders, and by mood disorders, we're generally talking about uh, someone who's clinically depressed. Mm -hmm. So they have depression, they feel depressed, they're sad or irritable, they have accompanying problems with their sleep and appetite and motivation. They may feel that life isn't worth living, their social withdrawal. That's what clinical depression is. Yep. Or the flip side, which is uh, mania, mm -hmm. where you feel maybe euphoric, where you're laughing too much and you, um, you don't need to sleep because you've got so much energy. Yeah. And you might have problems with your ideas just flipping from one to another. You might be somewhat grandiose, believing you can do things that you really can't do. Mm -hmm. I mean, it could be as um, subtle or simple as believing you can drive a car when you can't. Mm -hmm. But <laughs> your peers maybe are starting to, like, a, like the, your 16-year-old, a uh, sibling is getting a driver's license and, well, I can't remember what the age is now, but I think it's 16. Yeah. Um, and why can't you? And you might develop some grandiosity thinking you can do that. So that's an example of, so, so that's a manic uh, syndrome. Mm -hmm. So if you, if, uh, if the, so firstly, it's very unusual to get mania or depression before puberty. If one 
depression is probably a little more common in Down syndrome than in the general population and does increase, the risk increases as, as the, as the uh, youth uh, gets older. Mm-hmm. Mania, which is part of a so-called bipolar mood disorder, mm-hmm. is a very interesting question as to whether it is less common in Down syndrome or not. When I started out in this, working in the field of uh, developmental disabilities, which is a long time ago, um, there was a psychiatrist called Robert Sovner in um, Massachusetts who had this theory because he was, wasn't sure why he was seeing a lot of patients with Downs who had major depression mm-hmm. and he wasn't seeing any with bipolar mania. So his theory was that either it was less common mania or people with Down syndrome had a more attenuated form of bipolar. In other words, the symptoms of bipolar were just, they were there, but they were more subtle and not as striking as one would normally see in the general population. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, I think that's my clinical experience is that if one has Down syndrome, you, the, the symptoms of mania are more attenuated or, or milder, but mm-hmm. it does so still occur. Hypomania. It, it would look like hypomania, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, okay, there's a lot there that I want to unpack for the people that are listening. Um, the first thing I want to address is what should parents look for? Let's talk about depression first. What are we looking for? You've mentioned disturbances with sleep. Are these the classical symptoms of depression that we would see across the general population as well? Appetite, sleep, irritability, low mood, same low kind of things. Mm-hmm. Right. So the, the so if one has Down syndrome, I'm thinking of the very first adolescent I saw, she, she might have been even a young woman by then, who had Down syndrome and depression. And she literally couldn't move. She was like oh, she's stuck catatonia. in a, mm-hmm. Well, she wasn't quite catatonic, but she was almost catatonic. She was mm-hmm. in her bedroom didn't want to get up. The lights were out. She was sleeping all the time. She had zero energy. She wasn't eating at all. And I remember being really quite shocked because she wasn't getting any help. Yeah. Um, so to answer your question, one has to infer. If the, if the, she also wasn't speaking. Oh, that's the other thing. She lost skills. Yes. Yes. She yeah, suddenly yeah, couldn't control her, her, her urine, oh, which yeah. she'd always been able to do for as long, you know, for many years. So she'd actually lost skills and regressed and wasn't, uh, was hardly speaking. So in this case, I can't ask her how you're feeling because she can't tell me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but so I'd had to interview her, her caregivers. Mm-hmm. I, I can't recall if she lived at home or not, but I had to interview her caregivers and, they, and ask them, is she, do you think she's, uh, is she crying? And I said, yes. I say, does she ever laugh? No. Did she used to laugh? Oh, yes. She was a happy young woman. She's mm-hmm. about a year ago. She used to laugh all the time. Does she? And then the other critical question one has to ask for depression is, because the two key questions one asks for depression are, are you tearful, crying, or irritable? 
And the second one is, have you lost interest in things mm -hmm. that you used to do? We call it anhedonia. There's mm -hmm. just a lack of pleasure in the things that gave our life pleasure and meaning before. Mm -hmm. And they say, oh, yeah, she used to love to go dancing and she used to sing all the time and she used to love to go skating and love to see her friends and she stopped all those activities over the past year. Yeah. So, yes, she's got the symptoms, but one has to get the information from someone who knows her well. Mm -hmm. So I think the point that you're making here is if someone's listening to this and what they're hearing describes their child's baseline, then we're not as concerned. I mean, I'm still concerned if someone's in their bed all day. Don't mm. get me wrong. Yeah. But mm everybody's coming from a different baseline. Mm. So if your baseline mm. is very social and you're dancing and you're singing and you're engaged with other people out of the house and then over a period of weeks to months, that's disappearing, you're losing functional skills, mm. then certainly we become very concerned at that point and they should talk to somebody. Yeah. Um, this sounds to me like exactly what I was going to ask you in my next question, which is, that we occasionally see a client who has a major depressive episode like this, where they have lost a number of functional skills, huge decline in their communication, and often a big retreat from their regular life. And even fundamental skills, self-feeding, toileting, some of these kind of things. It's rare. I don't want to panic families. This is not happening to everybody. Um, can you talk a little bit about what can set that in motion, what's happening there that causes this sort of major decline in function? Very sudden too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't think we, I don't think we understand what's causes um, these um, major changes in the regular population. Fair enough. We, yeah. we, we just yeah. know that if one has serious clinical depression, it doesn't just affect how you feel in your emotions. It also causes your body mm -hmm. to slow down. Mm -hmm. your, um, it, um, you get what are called changes in your um, hypothalamic functions, which is the hypothalamus is the part of the brain that controls eating and sleeping and sexual activity and energy and it just slows down that's part of the one of the so-called biological characteristics of a severe depression mm -hmm. okay so in other words we don't necessarily know why but we know that it's depression goes beyond just how you feel mm. about things around you Okay. Yeah, I, yeah, I think that's right. In other words, we're saying that there's such a thing as um, depression as a feeling that mm -hmm. most of us experience at some point in our lives where we feel sad versus depression as an illness. Mm -hmm. And what we're talking about now is depression as an illness. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. Yeah. Where it's affecting your full daily functioning, it is... Definitely. Do you feel like, Dr. Friedlander, that sometimes we can connect this major depressive episode to perhaps a traumatic event or what could be perceived as a traumatic event by our individuals with Down syndrome? Like it could be the littlest thing that could have cascade effect at all? 
Well, this is the million dollar question nowadays. I think there's a belief out there, which is often with good reason, that traumatic events, and we know that if you have adverse childhood events growing up, you are at more risk of mental illness like major depression as you get older. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the but I can tell you, I also see, uh, you know, folk who have a major depressive illness that is not related to traumatic events, and that's probably more common. Okay. Okay, it's good to know. In clinic, sort of anecdotally, we notice, because we see students from age pre-birth to about 25 on average, Mm -hmm. we see some older adults, but that's a little bit more unusual. Um, We notice anecdotally that there's periods in a student's life where things like depression and anxiety tend to crop up. Mm-hmm. is the way to put it. This could be either the early school years or when we transition to high school mm-hmm. or the most, most common one is high school is done. Mm-hmm. And what next? Can you mm-hmm. kind of speak to this, these sort of sensitive periods? What is, what's happening? Is it the environment that's making this to be more likely? Or is this a brain development thing going on? What are your thoughts on mm. that? So, so when it comes to periods of transition, maybe I can talk about the, 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 the last transition, which is high, well, maybe the high school period and then into um, leaving high school. Mm-hmm. I think that's probably the most difficult time for the youth with Down syndrome that I have worked with. Um, And the reason is because I think the the other students who may have connected with them and been friends with them when they were younger start to find they have their own lives. They get boyfriends. They get... Um, girlfriends, they get their own friends and their parents aren't making uh, arrangements to them anymore. (laughs) And the Down syndrome adolescent is more likely to feel uh, alone Mm -hmm. and quite lonely. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a, it's quite well described that uh, during this time, Down syndrome youth are more likely to become more socially withdrawn. Now, I don't really understand it, um, but I suspect it's it's a reaction to basically not having uh, friends and connections. Um, I think the 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 youth who involved in groups like Special Olympics and community activities do better, but it, it. I think that's the that's the developmental problem there. And of course, once they finish school, and they lose that security and connection, I, I think it's really hard. Mm-hmm. And I think you know we can't underestimate that it is a hard time for every adolescent when they transition to do something else. But the 
one of the major differences is that for a typically developing adolescent, there usually is a something, something else, else yeah. and a something next that they have either planned or been pushed into by their parents or whatever, but there's something's coming after this. Mm. And a lot of times for our students, there is nothing that takes up that much time that there's such a routine around it that involves interaction with people every day. Mm-hmm. And for, we, see, we see it a lot where mm. students really suffer in that time. And mm. certainly mm. what you've mm. just described is a huge argument for having peers and supporting friendships with other people with Down syndrome and developmental disabilities. Mm. Even if your child is doing a great job at having typically developing peers, we still want them to have peers that have developmental disabilities. Mm-hmm. Right. Sure. Right. And, and, and I would say that I don't see this as illness. I think this is a, a developmental, uh, it's part of the develop, potential developmental trajectory of down. And I agree with you, you want to, this is the solution is to try and really have enriched uh, connections developing uh, and, and, and with other kids with special needs as well as they get older. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And kind of having that in place before their high school years end, because I know as an OT and Marla's an SLP, a lot of our conversations for some of our older teenagers with the parents begin in, at the beginning of their last year of high school, you know, like, let's... Yeah. So it's like, okay, like when they're 16, let's start talking about what is life going to look like after high school? You know, what are what supports and there are lots of supports that need to be in place and lots of funding that needs to be in place. So I think that's a really important point as well is that those conversations need to be had earlier and not wait till the last year of high school. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Can, um, I, can I say something? Um, yeah. just, going, sorry, just going back to the major depression. Mm-hmm. Um, I mentioned that the, the depression can look like an illness. It's because it's so severe. I just wanted to, uh, you're probably going to ask me this, but I do want to reinforce that, that um, uh, youngsters and adults with Down syndrome are more prone to having an underactive thyroid. And that if you have an underactive thyroid, it can look like some of these features of depression. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something that, should be checked on an annual basis if you have down, which your pediatrician generally would do. Mm-hmm. Glad you mentioned that. Yeah, I am too. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I think it's a, it's supposed to be a very regular assessment, six months or yeah. every year, one or the other of those, and it's a, it's a blood test, fairly straightforward, mm-hmm. um, but important, absolutely. And clinically, we see students that are hypothyroid and also hyperthyroid. Mm. So it's Mm -hmm. worth checking because you don't necessarily know which thing might be going on. Um, Mm. Let's talk a little bit about anxiety for students with Down syndrome. Certainly, I see students who have social anxiety. Mm. And this this tends to be the students who are more aware. Mm -hmm. So they Mm. might be higher functioning, if we want to call it that, from an intellectual perspective. Mm. Right. They're not as far behind their peers. Mm. But this also, you know, catch 22 makes them more aware of the differences between themselves Mm. and their peers. Mm. And what this might look like from Mm. my perspective is I'm perfectly capable of talking, but I'm not going to talk to anybody. Mm. Do you have thoughts on anxiety in the population of people with Down syndrome? Well, 
I'm, as you're asking the question, I'm thinking clinically, I don't see anxious kids with Down syndrome. I mean, it's not that they're not there. They don't come to see a psychiatrist. Mm. Mm-hmm. They're probably seen by the pediatrician and by you guys in Down Syndrome Research Foundation and by the school. They don't tend to come to me. Um, but, I, but, I mean, I think the important thing about anxiety is it can happen at any age. Mm-hmm. And once again, I think you, you, you at the beginning you talked about uh, the whole concept of uh, baseline exaggeration. Mm-hmm. So this implies that just I think you said it really nicely, but I'll re- say it again. If at your baseline you're pretty happy and you're outgoing and you have no problem talking to people, and suddenly you want to. You, you, don't, you, you keep quiet when you're in public and you don't want to talk to anyone, one has to wonder if you then acquired some mental health problem. And so your two, the two possibilities are some kind of generalized or social anxiety or what Marla may have been a, um, thinking about earlier, which is a form of selective mutism. Mm-hmm. Yes. That is exactly what I was thinking of. And I see it. More often, I guess, than you would think where a student will have their preferred people to talk to that they feel comfortable with and then will either, you know, sort of act like they cannot talk or just will not talk with almost Mm. anybody else Mm. um, when it does happen. And I want our listeners Mm. to, if that is your experience, there is help for that and there are strategies for that. Mm -hmm. And you should Mm -hmm. talk to at least your SLP and probably get a psych to help you as well. Right. Uh, Yeah. No, I think that's important just because I think, you know, selective mutism is treatable, as Marla said. um, They're actually quite uh, effective behavioral treatments for selective mutism. And, uh, but you need to have someone who knows what they're treating. It's just Mm -hmm. a a regular counselor may not have the the skills. Right. Mm -hmm. And anxiety, I think it's anxiety BC. I'll put the link on this episode page. Has or it's Anxiety Canada, maybe, um, has some really great info that you could pass to your child's team members to sort of get the ball rolling if that is happening with you. Mm-hmm. Um, the next thing can I wanted I, to ask you... Oh, sorry, yeah, can ahead. I just... Uh, yeah, I just had a quick question. Dr. Friedlander, you were mentioning earlier that you don't necessarily see a lot of um, patients or clients with Down syndrome that have like a co-occurring anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, do you... Would you attribute that to the fact that anxiety can manifest differently um, for our individuals with Down syndrome, because I know that it can, it's not always an outward physical manifestation. Mm. So mm. what are your thoughts on how anxiety can manifest? Because I've had this conversation with parents who mm. outwardly will say, no, no, he or she is not anxious, but they mm. might be experiencing it in a completely mm. different way. Okay. So I can, maybe I can answer that in a couple of ways. The one is that in general, Typical children, if you ask the parents, are you concerned about your child? Parents are really good at describing if a child has disruptive behavior. (laughs) Many parents, not all, are not as good at being aware of the child's internal feelings, states. Yeah. I mean, some parents obviously are, but feeling states that are internal are much more difficult to access 
because the kids don't tend to talk about it that much. Mm-hmm. So in general, these anxiety symptoms are something that family, school may not be aware of. Then in terms of coming to me, I can tell you this is just a just the way my referral um, pattern. I tend to get disruptive kids. Mm-hmm. So yeah. if the kid is aggressive and they're not getting better, someone says they better see a psychiatrist. That's how they get to me. Mm-hmm. A kid who is more quiet and withdrawn tends not to get referred to psychiatrists. Mm-hmm. So it's really for parents and teachers and support team to be more sensitive and aware of this possibility. How does, what is, how does one check if a child has anxiety? Well, you can infer it from their behavior if mm-hmm. they're more socially withdrawn, if they're not speaking, if they're kind of sleeping. S- sleeping. I was just going to say or sleep not difficulties, sleeping. not yeah. sleeping. Yeah. If they're having insomnia, yeah. Mm-hmm. If they're tired, mm-hmm. if they have muscle aches and pains, general pains in their body that are unexplained, tummy aches and headaches on school days, wanting to sleep in their parents' bed when they have been sleeping in their own bed before this. So you can assert from their behavior. And you can also ask the kid, um, I, usually ask the, I usually ask children or adults um, a, a multiple choice question. Um, you know, I find that the best. I'll say, are you high? If I ask an open question, like, how are you feeling? They'll say, good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so then I, so I say, you know, are you feeling, uh, do you have worries? And, and then they may not know what worries are. So you may have to ask in different ways. Or you, do you get nervous? Do you get frightened? Um, you may then have to ask more specific questions like, do you sometimes feel funny feelings in your tummy? like butterflies in your tummy? Do you sometimes feel your heart beating really fast? Do you have problems yeah. with your breathing? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then the multiple choice. So those are, those are multiple choice questions. Those are fairly leading questions. But the multiple choice question may be, do you, well, let me think, do you worry about the future is a good one. Mm-hmm. Do you worry about your parents? Do you worry about school? Do you worry about friends? Um, do you worry about bad things happening? Yeah. Um, so actually, I'm, as I'm asked, telling that, I, I'm just realizing none of those are multiple choice questions <laughs> um, because actually for anxiety, it's like, what's the opposite of anxiety? Everybody has a bit of anxiety. Um, it's easier, just as I'm talking, for, to, to try and tap someone's mood. So ask, are you feeling s- sad? And the patient says, no. And I say, are you feeling happy? And they'll say, no. So I'll say, well, are you more happy or more sad? And then just in case they're going to try and please me or give me the, my last, you know, if I said sad, they're going to say sad, then I have to ask it the other way. Well, are you more um, sad or yeah. happy? Just to yeah. make sure I'm getting a reliable answer. But actually for anxiety, it's hard to ask a multiple choice question. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, you're right. And um, we... I actually spend a lot of time on emotional literacy and vocabulary for this exact reason. Um, Our students tend to not be comfortable with negative or what they perceive as negative emotions. 
And yeah. sometimes they even seem like they think they're going to get in trouble yeah. if they're not happy. Yeah. Um, so yeah. the go-to is always, I'm happy. Yeah. And that is not an answer that we can necessarily trust. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll put yeah. some information on our episode yeah. page for how to sort of get yeah. into this a bit more. Mm-hmm. But, but, but if, yeah. But Mola, I mean, I think it's a really, it's such an important skill to mm-hmm. be able to identify emotions and label them. Um, at one point I was, I mean, like sometimes I'll ask the, the, the child because they, I can see they're getting upset in the office and mm-hmm. I'll say, what's happening inside? They are unable to identify the internal feeling state. Yeah. 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 And sometimes we have to give them the vocabulary to yeah. be able to say, I'm frustrated. Mm-hmm. I'm not happy or something. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's that's a, such an important role for educators and, and families and you guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And sometimes we'll even use a prop, like a doll or a mm-hmm. picture of a person and talk yeah. about where do you feel it? Mm-hmm. Where are you feeling it right now? Yeah. Or, you know, when I'm happy, I feel it here or there. When I'm worried, I feel it in my tummy or my head hurts, something yeah. like that. But making it very visual for our students. And, and also acceptable, like it's okay to feel oh, those things yeah. like, right? Like you have space for all sorts of emotions. So if we're mm-hmm. working on like the zones of regulation program, all my feelings are okay. Mm-hmm. It's just, you know, understanding what to do when you're in each of the yeah. the different areas. And so my working hypothesis as to how this not acknowledging bad feelings gets started mm-hmm. and happens is these feelings are accompanied with a lot of externalizing behaviors when kids are little. Mm-hmm. They don't have a way to say it, so they're going to show you with their body. When they get frustrated, they're going to hit you. They're going to push you. They're going to run away. And they get in trouble for that. Yeah. And so right there, we're learning, can't have those feelings. Not going to to acknowledge that those exist, rather than Mm -hmm. working on a more acceptable replacement Mm. for some of those. Especially if you have more communication difficulties too, right? Then you can't express it. Yeah, exactly. 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 Mm -hmm. All right. Um, if a student, let's say we start elementary school and it's rocky, we have a lot of externalizing behaviors, mm. we're running away, things are happening. Mm. Is it more likely that that student who had a hard time with their externalizing behaviors in elementary, and for people listening, I just mean acting out, um, are we going to see internalizing mood mm. issues? Is that more likely when they get older? Or is it kind of luck of the draw? You might get one, you might get the other. I'm trying to figure out if families should be preparing and predicting mm. or if it's going to mm. be random. Okay. So the number one cause of children being disruptive. In other words, difficulty waiting, easily getting frustrated interrupting, getting in people's space, perhaps escalating to aggression Mm -hmm. or self-injury. I'd say the number, probably a couple of causes, but I'd say the number, the top two causes are the child isn't sleeping at night properly, which is why I said you want to address sleep, Mm -hmm. or the child has ADHD. And the reason I mention these is because they are, highly treatable. Um, so, and I can tell you that it's very difficult for families because 
all kids are challenging. I've had kids, uh, <laughs> I can tell you. <laughs> and my children would tell you that I was certainly lacking in many parenting skills, despite my best efforts. Um, they're hard work having kids. Yeah. And and sometimes you, you get angry and you lose your temper and um, you don't know how to manage it. So I, I personally think that every parent should have, like, in the first five years of probably the first three years of life, they should have some parent behavioral management training. And there are some really good um, uh, courses that do this. Uh, for example, the um, Canadian uh, Mental Health mm-hmm. offer a program where they actually provide some telephonic advice to families about how to um, uh, uh, parent their children in terms of behavioral problems. Mm-hmm. So now in terms of, of a child with special needs like Downs, um, there are some other programs. Uh, I'm not sure if the Canadian Mental Health Program would see a family with a child with Downs. It's a good question. But well, we de- yeah, we definitely have a great in-house expert, too, mm-hmm. at the DSRF with the positive behavior strategies of Dr. Susan Fawcett. So, yeah, but I think that's a really good yeah. point, though, because right. those skill set needs to be in place for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so anyway, to answer your question, I think all kids, all parents should have some kind of general uh, strategies for managing children's behavior so that we're able to effectively provide the children with structure and um, get them to listen to important things they've got to do and learn without us getting rattled and angry because that's not good for the kids and it's not good for us. Right. So that's the first thing. As the, If a kid gets into school, I think once they get to grade one and they are having disruptive behavior, and it's not improving, and you've done the parent behavioral management training, and the child has symptoms of ADHD, I do think you should see your pediatrician and get a see if they do have ADHD and consider treatment for that because some of the medications can be highly effective. Mm-hmm. I, I remember one of the families that are that are first, this is years ago, whose son had ADHD. He was about seven. And this kid was a, he was hell on wheels. You know, he was, he didn't stop. And the mom was really embarrassed because most, she said, all the other Down syndrome kids are so good. And the other mothers, they look at me and they, and I feel they're judging me as not being a good parent. And this is, this kid did have significant ADHD and uh, it it was treatable. So just be aware of that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's, I'm so glad you brought that up because we do see it and you know, we are not psychiatrists, so we cannot make that diagnosis, but we can see a really clear difference and it's not necessarily in parenting styles between some children who can sit and do a table task and attend and we can do our 45 minutes. It's great. And other students where we are going, we are running, we are moving yeah. and we are not stopping and it doesn't change. We expect the little tots to be busy two, three years old. We expect that seven years old. We hope that we've progressed past that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So- and, and of course, just to, just to be clear, these neurodevelopmental disorders tend to occur together. Mm-hmm. So if you've got 
say, Down syndrome and autism, you, it's quite likely you've got ADHD as well. It's not like one or the other. Mm-hmm. Thank you for saying that as yeah, well. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. The co-occurrences definitely. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so actually this forays us into our next area beautifully. So let's talk about treatment. Now to the, the two commonly used approaches are medication oh, and oh, oh. Yes. sorry, Hannah, can I say one thing? Yes, um, of course. Before we talk about treatment, can, I just wanted to make sure that we at some point talk about catatonia. Sure, I think well, you, I let's think, do it. Go for it. I think, you know, you, you brought it up with that young woman I mentioned earlier who had that severe depression and lost mm-hmm. skills. Mm-hmm. Um, so so this, is, this, I just, this is just a really interesting syndrome that is, seems to be unique to children with autism and children with Down syndrome. Mm-hmm. And somewhere after the age of, somewhere around about the age of eight, nine, ten years or a little older, the kid starts losing skills. They, they, I mean, looking back, I'm just wondering if that, because I wasn't really aware, as aware of catatonia 20 years ago, it's possible that that young woman who had the major depression did have some catatonic features. But what's classic about the catatonia is that, they do, they, is that the, the, the child starts developing some fairly classic symptoms they slow down and they suddenly stop and freeze. Mm-hmm. They become prompt dependent. So these are children who literally stop with their fork, the foods on the fork when they're eating and it stops between the plate and the mouth. And the parent has to say, okay, put the food in your mouth. And they do. Mm-hmm. And then they have to be told, okay, put the fork on the plate that's dramatic or it might be they just freeze for half an hour don't move yeah or they might acquire some weird posture and hold it for a while or they might have some unusual um, movements of their hands uh, like a little flap or some odd um, postures accompanying this the child may stop eating and stop speaking and it can look like depression actually it can also look like the child suddenly became autistic. And I, mm-hmm. I had, um, I, I'm thinking now of one young woman who developed these features at the age of 12, and she was diagnosed with autism. She had Down syndrome, but at the age of 12, she had all these unusual features, and she was diagnosed with autism. Now, autism doesn't start at the age of 12. Autism is there from, it's pretty evident within the first few years of life. You don't suddenly get autism at 12. But her features were consistent with autism and someone gave her the diagnosis. But when it became, these symptoms became really severe over the next couple of years, she ended up seeing me and we were able to treat it quite successfully. Um, So she had catatonia and which I just wanted to, bring it up because it's a, it's a really good long good story about i don't know maybe 20 years ago i wrote a paper with some colleagues of mine mm-hmm. uh, rob perry and i can't remember the other author uh laurie somebody and it was called obsession obsession obsessive slowness in down syndrome mm-hmm. i've read that paper yeah we we thought this was a form of ocd Mm-hmm. 
presenting as everything slowed down. But looking back, once I became aware of the phenomenon of um, catatonia, mm -hmm. I realized we were wrong. Mm. This was not a form of OCD. This was catatonia. And if you, I'm interested in while I read the paper because you probably saw none of the patients got any better because <laughs> yeah. we were trying to treat them with drugs used for OCD, which didn't work. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I'm really, I'm really glad you brought this up. This, what you're describing applies to three of the students that I either have now on my caseload or have had in the past. And it's absolutely devastating for a family to watch this happening and not know why. And mm -hmm. it is very heartening to know that it can be treated. Is it treated primarily with a drug for mood? Nope. Opposed to OCD? No. What's totally what's, guessing. What do you so, do? So I'll what tell you what you do? do. All right. The first thing you do is you send them to, they should see a neurologist. Okay. You want to make sure they don't have something weird going on in their brain. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. None of the cases that I've treated had anything weird going on, but there are some weird things that can happen. Just make sure, just, they should have a neurological assessment. <laughs> Assuming that that's all normal, we treat them with high dose um, lorazepam, mm -hmm. oh. which is a benzodiazepine uh, used for anxiety. Mm -hmm. so, so, I mean, the treatment is quite, it's interesting because the treatments are the lorazepam. Well, actually all the cases that I've treated, I've treated with lorazepam. Um, and I'd say the response rate is probably about 70%. So they don't all get better, but most of them do. Mm -hmm. no. That, I mean, that's impressive. And that's mm -hmm. really good information to know. I will be making some referrals soon. Mm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's really, that's really good because it, it's a bit of a mystery and you just, mm. the sudden sort of inability to initiate mm -hmm. a movement like you're describing is, al is alarming. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 It, it, and these, these families are like, they're so happy when they get their kids back. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, so yeah. So thank you for, for mentioning that because yeah, I think the, and there is definitely more research happening now um, with regards to catatonia and down mm. syndrome. And I think at uh, this mm. year's down syndrome medical interest group conference, they had a special like mm. presentation on catatonia because it is becoming, it's becoming more, um, recognized as something that needs to be looked at. So, mm. um, so yeah, so let's talk a little bit about treatment. And the two commonly used approaches are generally medication and CBT, which is cognitive behavioral therapy. And for those who may not be aware, CBT is um, a treatment approach that focuses on how our thoughts can affect our behaviors. We've all heard that medications for, you know, things such as ADHD can be vastly overprescribed. And We've heard, Marla and I both have heard stories, horror stories from parents about going on ADHD trial medication and they just don't recognize what their kid, who their kid is the next day. Mm. Um, and I think this puts families in a position of hesitancy and caution, mm -hmm. which is, I mean, definitely a, not a bad thing. They should definitely mm -hmm. be hesitant and cautious. Mm -hmm. Can you speak about whether medications for things like ADHD and anxieties? and depression work for people with Down syndrome? And should this be done simultaneously with CBT or mm -hmm. should one go first? Mm -hmm. Okay. 
So the answer is that in general, it, it partly depends on the severity of the case. Mm-hmm. I think if, if a child has fairly severe symptoms, I would probably go to medication sooner than later. So I'll give an example. Um, if you have anxiety, generally the treatment for anxiety is CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, which you described. <laughs> cognitive behavioral therapy can be modified for children with um, Down syndrome. And so just to be aware, cognitive behavioral therapy says that the theory is that our thoughts affect how we feel, how we feel inside. If you can stop having scary thoughts and stop maybe catastrophizing them, for example, so that you worry that something bad's going to happen and suddenly you worry that the whole world's going to end and you're going to die. If you can stop those catastrophic thoughts, then one can um, one can uh, ameliorate the anxiety and the feeling and the uh, underlying feeling of uncomfortable feeling of anxiety. The the idea about modified CB. Sorry, just which way? So that's CBT. So the idea is that you change your cognitions or your thoughts, and then you change your behavior. You can't do one without the other. If you just change your thinking, but you don't change your behavior, nothing will cha- will um, change. It's a bit like the whole the whole theory that you know the whole old story that if you fall off the horse, you've got to get back on the horse. Otherwise, it'll be harder to get back on that horse. So, if you fall off a horse, you should try and get back on as soon as possible, or it gets you get more and more anxious about getting back on that horse. <laughs> so. Dealing with anxiety is not just changing your cognitions, but also changing your behavior. The idea about modified CBT is that you focus more on on the B, on the behavior, and less on the cognitive part of it. So, for example, let's take the horse example. You fall off the horse, and then you don't want to get back on a horse again. You may want to spend less time thinking about why you're having irrational thoughts and catastrophizing about what could go wrong getting back on the horse Mm -hmm. and maybe more time starting to behaviorally desensitize to that. For example, maybe just looking at a picture of a horse and practicing a relaxation exercise at the same time and then maybe visiting the the farm where the horse is but not getting on the horse and slowly getting your confidence up. Mm -hmm. So that would be an example of what's called behavioral desensitization. Mm -hmm. And so small c, big B, T is a good treatment for anxiety. Mm -hmm. And I still think that's a good idea. (laughs) If the anxiety is disabling, the person doesn't want to go to school because they're terrified of leaving their mother because they've got severe separation anxiety and some behavioral desensitization is not working. I wouldn't wait six months. You know, I'd, I would try and treat that child with a, um, an anti-anxiety medication. And we usually start with medications called serotonin reuptake inhibitors, mm-hmm. such as uh, fluoxetine or sertraline, one of those medications, uh, sooner than later. Um, with regard to the whole question of medication side effects, uh, and I think Marla or or, or, and you, Hina, brought up the whole issue of families having horror stories of children having really bad effects from medications. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, medications can have um, benefits and risks. Um, there's no medication that doesn't have a potential side effect. And so if you go on a medication, it really needs to be carefully monitored. So just talking about the anti-anxiety meds, because I was talking about that, um, these medications don't work straight away. They often take two or three weeks to start working. Mm-hmm. You want to build the dose up, starting at a low dose, and but increasing up to a so-called therapeutic dose. Mm-hmm. The commonest side effects um, of so-called the serotonin reuptake inhibitors in childhood are that the child becomes activated. And it's not often well known that children who go on these medications are at a much higher risk of the so-called behavioral activation than adults and may not be able to describe it. Even typical Mm -hmm. kids may not be able to describe it, but it tends to present as the child feels uncomfortable inside. They get a sort Mm -hmm. of inner sense of restlessness, they may start to pace. There might be problems with sleep, and they may be irritable. Yeah. So this is obviously not a desired effect. It's a side effect. The way to avoid it is to start with a really low dose. I mean, obviously, if someone has this kind of side effect at the lowest possible dose, then they can't take that medication. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, yeah. You have to look exactly. at something else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But in general, if you start slowly, you can try and prevent that these, these, these side effects, um, that so-called behavioral activation that you get with, anti, with these anti-anxiety meds. Mm-hmm. Do you want me to talk about ADHD side effects? Or? Yes, yes, please. That's exactly where I was going to go. So please go for it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So with regard to ADHD meds, um, uh, in general, children with um, not just Down syndrome, any uh, children with special needs, including autistic kids, don't do as well on the so-called stimulant medications that are the first-line treatment for ADHD as the general population. Now, that's not a reason not to use them. They can still be very effective. Um, And in fact, they are sometimes the most effective medications for these kids. But just to be aware, what's the target symptom? What's the target's um, uh, symptoms? For the ADHD meds, you're really looking at helping the child to sit at the at the uh, at the desk or in circle at school, mm-hmm. not kind of getting in the other kids' space and touching them and bothering them, because mm-hmm. that's really going to affect the kid's ability to make friends. Being able to wait in line, being able to sit at the table at night, not bother their parents when they're on the phone too much being able to manage their frustration. So if this is, these are, this is really what you want to help. Yeah. So start with a stimulant. The two main, the most common stimulants are based on a medication called uh, methylphenidate or Ritalin. Mm-hmm. Um, my experience is if you give to a lower dose, it doesn't work. If you give to a higher dose, you can get irritability or um uh, or, or, the, or the kid can look like a zombie. They look like they're spaced mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. So obviously yeah. you, you, that the way to avoid that is by starting low and increasing the dose slowly. Mm-hmm. The good thing about stimulants is that, you know, the, the day you give it, you know, it either works or doesn't work. Yeah. If it's not working and there are no side effects, increase the dose yeah. uh, to, until you get to a therapeutic dose. But what I did, I just, re, I just reiterate, kids with Downs may not do as well or respond as well as typical kids to 
um, medic- medications like Ritalin. Mm. And in that case, I tend to use an alternative medication. Um, there are two options. The one that I like the most is a medication called Clonidine. I think that's a really effective med in about two-thirds of kids. Mm-hmm. The problem with Clonidine, you have to give it two or three times a day, usually three times a day, which is a bit of a pain. Yeah. But it tends to be effective. Some kids can't tolerate it because it can make them drowsy. So there's no, the point is there's no perfect medication, but really uh, you need to be working closely with your primary physician around this. And the, the bottom line is start low, but if there's no response and no side effects, slowly increase the dose until you get to a therapeutic effect. That's great. Um, I have a whole bunch of other questions. So I'm going to try to get myself back on track for a second. So with respect to CBT, and thank you for kind of alluding to that we can adapt CBT. Um, that's really great. Um, for Marla and I, you know, we see a, a, ra- a, w- a wide range of clients at the DSRF. Some are very chatty, some are minimally verbal, or some are nonverbal altogether. So you kind of covered how we can adapt CBT to different cognitive levels a little bit, but how effective could CBT be for some of our students with varying language levels? And Marla, please feel free to jump in if you want to. No, you nailed yeah. it. Yeah. Nailed it. Perfect. <laughs> well, my sense, my Heen, is that you probably know the answer to this better than I do. <laughs> do you want to tell us what you think? What do, what do you, what you guys use for uh, children who have minimal verbal skills? Marla, why don't I let you go first? Because sure. The yeah. You know, just because a child doesn't express anything verbally or minimally verbally or through their AAC device, et cetera, does not necessarily mean that mm-hmm. they don't understand you. Those two are not on par with each other. So it doesn't mean you don't talk at all, but you do adjust the complexity of your language and what you're going to say to the student when you're describing things like fear and mm-hmm. you know particular stressful situations, whatever is relevant. And mm-hmm. I would use more, I would rely more on visuals yeah, and exactly. props to illustrate what I'm talking about, just to ensure that I'm providing the student multiple ways to understand what I'm talking about. And mm-hmm. the focus would be on the B, on what are we going to do to replace this behavior? And we would use a lot of sort of contingencies where when we see what we are going for our target behavior. We're going to get very happy and very excited about that. Yeah. And, you know, for seeing things that we don't necessarily love as much in the classroom, some of the disruptive things that Dr. Friedlander was talking about, you know, we decide, are we ignoring it? Are we removing the child from that situation to keep everybody safe, etc.? But we pay contingent attention to what we are sort of targeting as a behavior. Yeah. And I think behavior is a little bit easier for them to understand than thoughts. And I think both of you alluded to this earlier that, Mm. you know, emotions are a tricky thing to understand how your thoughts affect your behavior. So I think having that emphasis on behavior and the output and the externalization of of their thoughts is a little more um, salient to them and they can understand it more and relate to it more. Hmm. So I think that's from our perspective. Yeah. And using their interests, right? So visuals, things that are more meaningful to them in their lives, using those as examples can also be really helpful. Um, 
Okay, great. That was a, a nice little like brainstorming session. I love that. Um, so Dr. Friedlander, in terms of medication, so I've, I've had multiple conversations with parents who I know I've had some clients that have a dual diagnosis of Down syndrome and autism and ADHD is in the mix somehow. Um, I've had some parents that have been willing to try medication, but say after maybe a week or so, like, nope, it's not working. My mm. kid is acting differently. Mm. Um, so what I normally say, not being a psychiatrist and very cautiously, I say, well, talk to your doctor about maybe trying a different medication or giving it some time. So mm. what is your advice to, to parents that are really just having a hard time waiting out that two to three week period to see a change on mm. medication? Yeah. Well, let me first um, preface this by saying that most of the community managed uh, medication management for children with Downs would be done by their pediatricians. Mm -hmm. So, and, and pediatricians generally do fantastic work and they often are the one dependable professional in the child's life from the beginning. But let's be quite frank. Most pediatricians have almost no psychiatric training. It's remarkable how well they do. And some of them do fantastic jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, if you feel that you, there's a family, family feels they're just not getting, they're just not on top of it, they should speak to their pediatrician and say, if necessary, ask for a referral to a, a psychiatrist. Uh, I don't know if people are afraid of psychiatrists. Uh, there used to be, there still is some fear that of, of, mm-hmm. of the, I'm not sure why we're so scary, but. Um, <laughs> you can blame movies for that, I think. Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> One flew over the cuckoo's nest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Ruined it for everybody. <laughs> yeah. But I, I do think that, I mean, there are not a lot of psychiatrists around, but as psychiatrists tend to have the expertise in this area. Unfortunately, there are very few psychiatrists who have the experience with kids with Down syndrome. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I'm quite a rare beast. The, um, and I'm getting on a bit, you know, I'm going to retire one of these days. But you'll probably find in every town there's probably one psychiatrist or at least area, since every town, every, every in what each region will probably be a psychiatrist who might have some expertise in the area. You, know, you should just ask around and see who can help. I think it is helpful to have someone to hold your hand while you wait or while you have, when you have questions around this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, if you're a little older, there's also in this province anyway, the developmental disability mental health teams that um, may be able to see your adolescent or, or, or adult um, with Downs. And then uh, we also have, we do see, take referrals to our so-called neuropsychiatry clinic at BC Children's Hospital as well mm-hmm. for kids with Downs who might have significant uh, mental health issues. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I want to just sort of unpick a little bit here. So let's say we try medication number one and it's not working well. Uh. Do we conclude based on that, that the other medications are likely to have the same side effects? I mean, I'm assuming no, because that's the whole point of having other medications is that Mm -hmm. they work in a slightly different way. Mm -hmm. So I think what can happen is parents write off medication because the first one is such a bad experience that they're like, Mm -hmm. well, you know, this was terrible and that was sort of the best choice. So how is anything else going to be better or different? So Mm -hmm. can you speak to how that 
works a little bit? Sure. Well, I think the first thing is, if the medication doesn't work, you want to make sure it's the right med- it's the right class of medications. Like, are you, are, they, are you treating? Like, I just think it's so important to ask your doctor and maybe be very clear. What are the target symptoms that you're treating? Like, I try to outline for ADHD. Okay, my target symptoms are going to be. I don't want my child to be. Um, uh, touching all the kids and touching me all the time and talking all the time and being able, I want them to be able to sit on their desk. So just have some very clear target symptoms that you focused on because uh, otherwise it's, sometimes it's hard to know that is there a response or is there not a response? But yeah, I mean, you, you're right. The reason there are more than one medication is that like even say ADHD and typical children about 70% of children, Typical children respond to um, ADHD meds based on on uh, Ritalin, but 30% mm-hmm. don't. But the 30% who don't respond to the Ritalin-based ADHD med may respond to a dexedrine-based stimulant. And as I said, in special needs kids, sometimes I don't even use a stimulant. I would use a different class of medication called clonidine. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you don't want to give up too quickly mm-hmm. there are you know different strokes for different folks <laughs> yeah 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 no that's a good way to that's a good way to put it and i think what you're what you're alluding to is the actual chemical compound is different it's going to act on the body differently mm-hmm. and therefore just because round one doesn't go to plan doesn't mean round two may not be more effective or at least get you closer to that target that you're looking for, whether it's mm. school attentiveness or mm-hmm. aggression or whatever. Yeah. Well put. Yeah. Um, and would we be correct in assuming that like if a, if a parent is hesitant about trying ADHD medication, I've had this conversation before, mm. can we say that it's worth a try, but that there won't be any adverse side effects if we try it for two weeks and kind of wean the child off of it. Because that's, I think, another fear parents have mm. is that I'll try it, but if it doesn't work, it's going to ch- like change permanently or for long term mm. change yeah. my child. Yeah. Right. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, this, if parents and there's three main worries about medication. Uh, I learned this from Stan Kutcher, who's a psychiatrist in Halifax now. Um, they worry. It, one is the medication going to have a long-term effect on the, on the child. So the good news is stimulants. Mm-hmm. There are no long-term side effects. And once, if you stop the medication, you don't even have to wean it. You can just stop the medication mm-hmm. and start your body and there's no long-term risk. So, but there were, that's the one question. The mm-hmm. second question is, does it cause addiction? And this, these are kind of things actually that one should try and remember. I, sh- I should try and remember to bring up with my patients every time I'm recommending medication. Um, mm-hmm. Most of these medications are not addictive, but it's important to maybe make that clear. And mm-hmm. the third question is, is it going to change my child's personality, mm-hmm. which you really alluded to, mm-hmm. usually in a negative way? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I yeah. don't think anyone's mad if our child becomes cherubic and, yeah. you know, yeah. more com- never does more anything naughty through. again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah. 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 Okay. No, that's, that's good to know because I think a lot of the times, and I've had experience with two clients where one, they've tried different trials and they finally found a cocktail or a, you know, a therapeutic dose that works for him. And then another client where it's like, 
one and done, not going to work for us. We're going to just not try. And then of course you can't obviously push. So, but it's good to, good to know these things because we're not psychiatrists, but at least we can impart this information on them. Yes. Yeah. And do you want to talk about timing and dosage? And Yeah. So, I mean, you did refer to this a little bit earlier in terms of start low, go slow, I think is kind of the, you know, the theme here, but how do things like, cause I know with sleep medications and certain medications, they have a paradox effect or they will um, kick in at a certain time. Like what are some of the considerations that parents should have when providing medication in terms of dosage and metabolism and how it interacts with their kids' chemistry? Well, most, well, I think what you're referring to is that uh, some children metabolize drugs faster than others. Mm-hmm. So in general, kids metabolize drugs faster than adults. Um, so sometimes parents will say, gee, that seems a really high dose because that's like an adult dose. And it is. And that's because children metabolize medication so quickly that they often need adult doses. But there's a, some, there are some children who are what are called fast metabolizers. Because when you have a drug, it does its effect in the brain and then it gets broken down in the liver it's like the factory of the brain and then disposed of. Well, some kids really metabolize that drug very quickly in the liver and it's gone. They actually need a higher dose than most kids. Other children, they metabolize really slowly. It takes The drug stays in the body for ages, more longer than it should. And so they need a lower dose than typical kids. One of the ways to find out is actually, this is often genetic. So check with the parents if they are someone who needs higher or lower doses of medications as a rule. It often guides you as to what the child will need. Okay. That's, that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. And so what I, what I think you're saying there and what Hina is trying to point out is that there are some tweaks that can be done. You might have landed on the perfect medication, but we might need to tweak and not, not me. Um, <laughs> you might need to tweak um, the dose or the timing or the frequency so that we're getting the positive impacts that we want at the time that we want them, which is, you know, the school day or whatever. And we're not asleep or we're not totally wired after two hours. Like it was great. And now it's gone. Kind of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, the stimulant medications like Ritalin were, they've actually been, They've been around for, for many, many years. But one of the problems with Ritalin is in the, when I was starting out is that it worked for four or five hours and then there was, was the, it kind of stopped working. And in fact, sometimes there was a rebound and the kid had even worse behavior when it wore off. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. now there are these long-acting forms of Ritalin. So if you give a stimulant medication like Ritalin or Dexedrine, um, one should be able to give a once-a-day dose and it should last the whole day. But should is not what actually happens. Uh, so I, I just saw a kid yesterday who was on a medication called Bifenton, which is a long-acting form of Ritalin. It's supposed to last 10 to 12 hours. Well, the, 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 the medication wore off at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Mm. And so there's, this, this is probably a, a fast metabolizer, which I talked about earlier. And we had to actually change to a different form of written that was very long acting, ultra long acting. Yeah. Yeah. So these, these tweaks can be made though, is the the idea that, you know, and this is where parents come in to keep really close track. Like it was working this amount of time and then this other thing happened or, 
it was working and then my kid fell asleep or, you know, something else happened. But keeping close tabs on that helps you, I assume, to make these choices for what to do next. Do you often prescribe something like, uh, I would call it a drug trial diary. We do trial diaries for Mm -hmm. when I recommend things. Is that something that you often recommend? Do you mean like when we prescribe a medication, is it like a... do we, what do, you, do we have a, is it like a trial? I, so I recommend like if I'm trialing an AAC device, something yeah. new for the family, I say, this is what we're looking for. AAC, yeah. Yeah. you tell me, you keep yeah. track. Is it happening on day one? Is it happening yes. on day two? Do you do that as well? Well, I should. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think that's the right way to do it. I mean, I think it's worth having a list of the target symptoms Mm-hmm. And then tracking on a daily basis or a weekly basis, are they any different? And not just at home, but at school. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that is the the way it should be done. I, I sometimes do that, uh, like I'll give a rating scale to the, usually with the parents, I can get a good sense. And just seeing the kid, I can see if it's helping. Yeah. But I want to know mm-hmm. what they're like in another setting. So mm-hmm. I often use those sort of rating scales to track the response uh, with the school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And who you don't necessarily get to talk to. Yeah. I find it's helpful. His parents don't necessarily remember or don't yeah. remember accurately what was happening yeah. a couple weeks ago. I don't make them do this forever. I'm not mm. that mean, guys. Um, <laughs> but I, you know, two weeks, we're going to keep track mm. of it. And then we're going to see if we need to adjust it or mm. whatever. And I think it's it's important information for like that next visit with the mm. doctor too, right? So that, mm. because of course you're not seeing that kid on a, mm. on a daily basis. So for you, Dr. Mm. Friedlander, I'm assuming it will mm. be very helpful to have that information to adjust mm. medications the next time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think what well, I, I, I can tell you that um, often parents remember what happened uh, yesterday and it's, mm-hmm. I don't really kind of remember that far back. And uh, I think what's sometimes helpful is to have some really hard uh, indicators of response like how many times has the child actually been aggressive yeah. like something like physical aggression let's be very yeah. clear how yeah. has it been physical aggression so many times in the last month okay now we're going to try this medication keep tracking the times the child has physical aggression and we'll review that when i see you again so they're very hard indicators the work Gave you before more subtle indicators. The other indicator is sometimes we use what's called a PRN medication, which is like something to give in an emergency. The Mm -hmm. kid is really out of control and nothing's working. Mm -hmm. Well, how many times have you used the PRN in the last month? And then you give the medication. Okay, how many times have you given the PRN in the last month since he's been on the medication? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's a really clear mechanism for a family. And also you know, then they get a sense of this progress too, mm-hmm. which is important. I think, yeah. you know, what's past is past. And a lot of parents forget, you know, how bad it was compared to how it is now. Right. And mm-hmm. that's fair and valid because yeah. it was probably a crisis. Yeah. Um, well, I think that's a good, by the way, that's a really good point, Marla, is that we need to be really careful because often people come to see the doctor for medication after a severe crisis. Mm-hmm. And after the crisis, a lot of, Supports get parachuted in, lots is going on. The kids put on medication, there's an improvement. It may not actually be the medication necessarily. There there could be an argument for not prescribing the medication in the crisis, but waiting a month. 
So you're reliable. treating the baseline state, not the immediate yeah, consequence of aftermath of the crisis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of messes with the data that way, in a, in a sense, because you're not really sure exactly what the baseline yeah, is where first. Were right? Where yeah. were you and where do you want to get back to? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Dr. Friedlander, did you have any resources that you would like to share with the people who are listening? I, we can put links and materials in our episode page. Or is there anything that you think families should like really be aware of going forwards? Sure. I mean, I'm actually just trying to remember we had a, I have got a UBC program, which you alluded to and you introduced me. So this is the UBC uh, Department of Psychiatry homepage. Um, And if you look under neurodevelopmental disorders um, and you look under links, Oh, great. We put together all these um, oh, awesome. dual diagnosis resources, which are actually my, my, you know, Doug Lee, he's a psychologist who just retired. He'll put this together. We should acknowledge him. Great. And um, hang on, there's something else there is under links. There's also a, a link to healthcare access. Mm-hmm. Um, do you know these? It's it's a it's Yona Lansky. She's a, mm-hmm. and her group in Toronto. Yes, I think they do some really good work. Uh, it's, it's on healthcare to, toolkits. I think they've got one for Down syndrome, like yeah. checklists and so on. I think it's included in there. Okay, so Great. that's quite useful. I think. Yeah, Fantastic. absolutely. We will put that information mm-hmm. on our episode page so that everybody okay. can find it really smoothly. Good. Thank you so much. Hinda, did you have anything else you wanted to ask? Well, there's tons of things that I can I ask can for sure. <laughs> I feel like we need to get Dr. Friedlander back again um, for sure. another episode. But no, I think that you really provided us with a solid, not only us, but our listeners, our families, a solid knowledge base of how to um, really filter out Down syndrome, Down syndrome and autism, anxiety, um, I definitely learned a lot today, and I think it's 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 good because we can say these things about medication and treatment, but it's nice to get it from the source. So, so we really yeah. appreciate that. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Thank you well, for joining. Yeah, sure. I mean, what you should probably do is, um, if we do this sort of thing again, maybe mm. you should have one of the family, one of the parents. Um, address this cold medication question from a parent point of view. So sometimes it's better hearing it from a parent than from a doctor. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a great idea. Yeah. I'm into it. Let's do that. All right. (laughs) Well, nice to talk to to you guys. And it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. The Lowdown, a Down Syndrome podcast, can be found on all major podcast platforms. Subscribe today so you never miss an episode. And let us know what you think by leaving a rating and a review. Be sure to visit the webpage for this episode at dsrf.org podcast for additional resources related to the topic. You can also follow DSRF Canada on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube for updates from The Lowdown and the Down Syndrome Resource Foundation. Want to know more about Down syndrome? Class is now in session at DSRF's online learning portal powered by Thinkific. Users have called DSRF's resource brilliant, fantastic, and absolutely first class. Now, our educational platform puts these tools right at your fingertips. 
start with our free introductory course Down Syndrome 101 or dive deep into the issue that matters most to you by enrolling in subjects like mental health or relationships and sexuality for people with Down Syndrome. Each course guides users through video, audio, and written resource to help you better understand and support the person in your life with Down Syndrome. All courses and subscriptions include access to the DSRF Circle of Support. Through this social community, users can interact and learn from one another and engage directly with DSRF. So, what are you waiting for? Class is about to begin, and there's an empty desk just for you. Visit dsrf.org slash thinkific to sign up today. Got questions? We have answers. 321's Canada's Down Syndrome magazine brings leading-edge expertise from Canada's top Down Syndrome professionals, as well as parents and people with Down Syndrome direct to your inbox four times per year. Brought to you by the Down Syndrome Resource Foundation and Canadian Down Syndrome Society. 321 tackles issues important to people with Down syndrome and their families at every stage of life. From mental and physical health and development, relationships, employment, independence, and more, we will equip you to explore whatever your future hopes. 321 Magazine, information and inspiration for Canada's Down syndrome community. Download the latest issue and describe for free at dsrf.org slash magazine. The Lowdown, the Down Syndrome Podcast, is a production of Down Syndrome Research Foundation. Learn more at dsrf.org and join the conversation at DSRF Canada on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. The Lowdown is hosted by... Marla Fodan and Hannah Mahmood and it's produced by Glenn Hughes. The Lowdown theme music and George Do was written and recorded by Rick Scott.